Welcome to The Insider, the jazz session spin-off series where I chat to industry insiders about the nuts and bolts of the jazz business. Today's guest is Lydia Liebman, the founder and president of Lydia Liebman Promotions, a leading PR agency based in New York City with additional operations in London. Her current roster includes artists like The Baylor Project, Somi, Ted Nash and Glenn Close, yes, that Glenn Close, and labels like Dot Time Records and Whirlwind Recordings. Lydia regularly lectures about PR and other music industry related topics and has spoken at several higher education institutions, including the Royal Academy of Music in London and Berklee College of Music in Boston. Lydia, welcome to The Insider. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. This is such an honor. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure and it's been a delight getting to know you in this capacity because some of your artists have been on the show and I just think you're fantastic at what you do. And another thing is that other people that I've spoken to cannot say enough nice things about you. Thank you. That's so sweet to hear. No, truly, thank you. And it's been such a pleasure getting to know you, Nikki. Congratulations on your on your new gig. You're rocking it. It's great. Oh, Thank you. It's early days, so I think the jury's still out. We'll see. <laughs> Waiting for my mother's mm, review. Yes, that is my- that is the review that matters most. Trust me, I know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we we can mention that Lydia's father is Dave Liebman, who who was the opening guest of this show. Thanks very much to Lydia. But that is very high caliber jazz cloth from which to be cut. That is true. Uh, it, it is definitely, um, it doesn't hurt to have such cool parents. I'll say that. But uh, my dad really, I mean, he enjoyed being on the show and um, I love the interview you did with him. So thanks for having him. Thank you. Well, he's very special. And I was really struck when interviewing him, just how precious that time was. And I'm sure you must have those moments anytime you're with him, not only because he's just a lovely guy, he's such a mensch, but all of the stories. they do blow your mind in terms of their richness and their relevance to just jazz and the history of the music. Absolutely. And it's funny because obviously, you know, I've heard a lot of these stories so many times, but every time I I hear them, they're still uh, truly still as exciting and interesting as the first time. And um, it's, it is really, it's a gift, you know, to, to have access to such a you know, such a figure like that who has these first-hand encounters. It, it is, it is really, it is cool. You know, it isn't lost on me how how unusual it is. So, uh, anytime it can be spread and shared with people, it's great. So, I'm glad that you gave the opportunity to him. Thank you. Well, and you felicitated it. But enough about your dad. Let's talk <laughs> about you. <laughs> this, this is not Dave Liebman's interview part two. Um, what what I didn't know about you and other folks may also not know about you is that you have many you have almost a decade plus of experience in radio and also journalism in an ideal world those are two big facets of what you do now so in an ideal world how do all these moving parts come together to support an artist's release yeah so um as far as my own personal story and how these things kind of work together i mean i i started in in radio i i originally had a radio program in college and i first got my my feet wet dealing with sort of the promotional side of things in that regard. And kind of simultaneously to that, um, I was also working as a journalist for an education publication. And I've actually always loved writing. I wanted to be a writer when I was really young. And I, I've always had a love for writing. I, I wouldn't say that it's something that comes supernaturally to me. Like I, I'm not the type who can write every day and it really takes me getting into the proper mindset to write even to this day. Uh, if it's a press release or whatever, um, it, it's not something that is my, I guess it's just not as natural uh, as it would be if I were a full-time writer, but I've always loved doing it. And I was working for this education journal in New York City called Education Update. And it was a very different world and very, um, Obviously, you know, some adjacent to music and the arts, but it covered everything. So having the experience as a journalist in that way, uh, plus with the radio experience, which was very jazz and music centric, both of those things definitely informed how I operate as a publicist because I've understood how those worlds work. And I think it really helps to know 
you know, who you're pitching to and what they like to receive. And because I would think what, what I would like to get when I was on the other side. So having that perspective is helpful. And also just, I think having a broad range of perspectives is really helpful anyway, um, because it kind of helps you think about projects differently and thinking about different angles. And, you know, I think if we get too stuck thinking in our own little little niche, in our, niche, sorry, if we get stuck thinking in our own little niche in our own universe too much, then we can kind of miss like the forest for the trees. So I really do try to, you know, incorporate as many different perspectives as I can when I'm thinking about an artist release and how to pitch that. And I'm really thankful for that experience as a journalist in education, which I think actually was really helpful in that regard. So it all kind of works together. You know, PR is one of those things where there's so many different moving parts. And um, in a way, you kind of have to have a handle on all of them, which is a challenge to keep up on and everything. But it does help, you know, I think at least be a better publicist and then be a better uh, representation for your artist. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say all those moving parts per release, let's really kind of reiterate that because for the first time I'm on the receiving end of things from from publicists of, of, you know, um, releases and PR releases. And I'm completely gobsmacked at the sheer volume because I know that my peers are all releasing music, but I had no idea. Because unless you're in a position where you are getting those emails daily, you kind of just don't know the sheer volume of it. So for every release that you're sending me, all those moving parts exist. So multiply that by, I don't know, how many? It is crazy. I mean, it really is insane, like how much music is coming out these days. And just as you said, I mean, the sheer volume of it is just it's, it's so crazy. And, and, and yeah, like all these different releases are each, each have their own little ecosystems around them. And, um, a lot of those ecosystems are, are with us. So we're constantly, you know, creating content and constantly, you know, working on all these different little parts of everyone's campaign. And it really is awesome because every day is different and we're dealing with so many different things. And I love that, but it is also pretty overwhelming. I mean, when, when, sometimes when I step back and I, I like, will take a look at my schedule of my own stuff and I'm like, Oh my God, I can only imagine, but I also know what it's like to be in your shoes and the emails and the pitches and the music that's thrown your way. I mean, it is literally impossible for me to listen to the inquiries that come in for people that want to work with us that I, I don't even know how you guys do it. I'm truly like, I props. I don't know. You guys have time turners, I guess. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> it's crazy. Well you, well, you do know how I do it because very often I email back and I'm like, sounds good. And then I don't follow up. But then when you do offer me something that I'm like, that's really juicy. Well, that's the process. We and that's, and that is the process. And I think part of being, uh, you know, being in PR and being a good publicist and also being a good journalist too, is, is really just kind of knowing the rhythm that works and, you know, knowing how often to follow up and how, you know, how to pitch and what to target. And, you know, I, I, I really do try to be specific in who we're reaching out to. Cause I, I think I kind of have an idea of like what artists are liked by certain journalists and radio people and stuff. And, you know, if I know someone that's like really into like avant-garde free jazz, I'm not going to throw them a standards record, you know, sung by a vocalist, like, you know, and I think it really helps to know that. Um, and that's kind of what helps make our jobs a little bit easier when you know, and, and then you kind of get in the rhythm, like, okay, well, this person I know that I have to, I have to pitch and follow up with, or, well, this person, I know I can send them a blast and I know that they're going to do something. They won't tell me. I just know to look on and release day and they'll do something. So it's, it is a lot to keep track of though. <laughs> it is a lot to know. I will tell you it's a lot. <laughs> Thank gosh for online apps, I suppose. For real. Oh my gosh. Everything. Thank goodness for Google Drive. Like if Google Drive went down, I I don't know. Like you'd have to get a search party out there to find me because I would be throwing myself in a river somewhere. But yeah, thank goodness. (laughs) You heard it here first. If Google Drive goes down, then Lydia Liebman goes down too. I miss so Yeah.
worked under a lot of great people, both within radio and other publicists, when you started your own company, gathering all that you'd learned from those people, what was most important to you and what to do items were kind of top of your list in terms of carving out a name for yourself in this role? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when I started my PR company, and it is about, it is now like 10 years ago, um, I, I started it really organically. It was really just as a, originally a way to help my friends, truly like my friends at Berkeley, uh, get people to come to their gigs. So I, I didn't really set it up like, I'm going to start a PR company. It was more like I, I had this idea of, of how I, let me, let me rephrase, I, I was good at certain things that I thought could be beneficial to some of my friends. I was a decent writer. I knew how to like put a nice graphic together. I had um, an idea, a little bit of who wrote about jazz and covered jazz just from growing up in this world and kind of just kind of knowing a little bit. And I knew enough to kind of get me started. And I just sort of like learned as, as things went along. So I didn't really make like a conscious thing of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I kind of just like winged it for a pretty long time. I would say I, I the first five years was me winging it <laughs> big time and just learning on the go, watching what other publicists were doing um, and speaking with other PR people that I was friendly with and radio people and just sort of like internalizing what they told me and then just sort of running with it. Um, I will say that, you know, I went to school in Boston and um, Anne Braitwaite is, you know, an amazing, was a really just wonderful kind of mentor to me in a way. I mean, she had been working with my dad and we would go to her house for lunch and, you know, I would talk to her and it was the first time I actually saw a publicist in action and knew that was a thing that could be a career. Uh, so I just sort of, you know, she would help me a bit. I would kind of, um, I would just sort of like internalize some of the things that she told me and, you know, see some of the writings that she had and be like, okay, so like, that's how you do a press release. Cool. Um, and on the radio side, guys like Mark Reedy and Josh Elman at Groove Marketing, they used to send me stuff in the mail. And I used to be so honored that they would send my college radio show, you know, a new Blue Note release in advance. I was like, oh my God, I'm getting Robert Glassford in advance. Like I was so, I, I had no idea about this world. So I was so just like shocked and honored and happy. So I saw what they did, you know, and I was like, okay, so like, that's how you do one sheet. And that's just kind of how it happened. I sort of just, you know, saw things as they happened and, and then figured out how to do it. And then Mark Ruffin was really helpful to me. I interned under him at Sirius Radio a couple, I think it was my, I don't know, junior year maybe of college. And then that was also an eye opener too, to really see like what's being played on satellite radio. Like, how are they editing the tracks? Like what, you know, an interview on satellite radio. Oh, wow. Like it's actually really short. You know, it's, you have to cut it up a lot. Like it's not just like one long conversation. I mean, things that I had like no idea. So I just kind of learned as we went. And I'm so thankful that I had really great role models and mentors and uh, people in jazz, you know, they're great. They're great people. So for the most part. <laughs> so I learned from some really nice people and I'm very thankful to them. We'll talk off the record later. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, uh, <laughs> and, and Lydia, what did you study at college? I studied producing for film, television and radio. And uh, funnily enough, I actually entered school. I went to Emerson College. Um, I originally was a political communications major. And my first semester, I was in a class and I was like, oh my God, this is not for me. Like, I love politics. I mean, now it scares me, but I was like, I love this, but I don't want to do this. So I switched uh, to VMA, Visual Media Arts, and I was a producing major. I went to Berkeley as well at the same time doing this sort of joint program. So I did all my music studies, like the harmony and ear training and arranging and all of that. Um, I did, I was a vocalist when I was younger. I always just thought it was important for me to really understand the music and understand what I'm talking about. So taking those, those core classes was really important to me. So that's what I did. And uh, the producing major at Emerson, I mean, it is a major. I, you know, I, it's one of those things like I, I, I'm not really sure exactly <laughs> what, I, I don't know what it really, um, what the job would be if you went in that, I guess a produced, like you go to be a PA on a film, at a film set that you cover. I don't know, but it, it definitely taught me a lot about everything. And I think that's the most valuable thing about it. But yeah, producing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would think anything politically um, laced would be a ferocious foundation training for uh, working in the jazz administrative realm. So you're, it's, oh gosh, stands yes. you in good stead. I mean, it may be overkill. I mean, we're not dealing with, you know, this is not damages or 
um, house of cards, but sometimes it feels <laughs> like it is. <laughs> it's like, sometimes it really does feel like the way that certain things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, it's like in the grand scheme of things, it's like this, like, you know, new jazz release is not like the life, a world changing life altering type of thing, but like, it can sometimes really feel like it is. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, and also, I mean, jazz within jazz in and of itself is not, right. you know, pop music. We're not dealing with the Billie Eilish's of the world, but at times you're like, totally. I'm in the eye of the storm. This is, you know, electrifying. And then you're like, oh, hold yeah. on, wait. This is just definitely. A- it's true, man. It's true. <laughs> Absolutely. working with an artist with a musician what are the traits that you most appreciate in that artist um in terms of i guess how can a musician meet you halfway to make the results better and more plentiful in the work that you do together it's a great question and it really varies because everyone's situation is a little bit different so certain things that i would need from one artist will be different from what i maybe would need from another artist but in general i would say First of all, having a realistic understanding of the landscape is really important. And I would say that for the most part, I try to work with people that are really great and that 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 give a good vibe and that understand that. But sometimes we do have to remind clients like, hey, like we're dealing with, you know, a very specific world. Like the jazz world is really unique and it's very uh I keep saying it's a, it's its own ecosystem, but it truly is, and it's it's very unique from other genres of music. And the way that even PR is done is different than maybe what you know you would see in a more pop music campaign. Um, so I really try to um, if if my artist has an understanding of what we're dealing with and understands the playing field, that makes things much easier. It's really kind of a nightmare, honestly, if I have an artist come to me and they're like, you know, okay, so like I'm expecting, you know the cover of downbeat and I want to get on the New York times playlist. And I also, uh, you know, really want to get something from NPR. And I also, and it's like, we all want those things. Like we're, we're always looking for those things, but we also have to understand that this specific market jazz is like, you know, 1.8% of the entire music market. It is just a teeny, teeny little fraction. And so the opportunities for jazz artists to get coverage are often like a teeny slice of the already small slice of music coverage that, the New York Times is giving or NPR is giving or whatever. So if an artist understands that, cool. Um, younger artists sometimes don't get that. And this is their wake up call. Um, and then when they do get that, they're like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> but sometimes it takes them having to go through that experience to understand that. Um, on a more kind of just uh, technical side, um, artists that have a good social media presence makes my life a lot easier, especially if there is the possibility for crossover stuff a lot of these outlets that cover everything, it really is important for them to see a strong social media support. And I know this sounds like, I guess it's becoming more and more accepted that this is kind of the way things are. It is still kind of a drag for me to have to tell a client, hey, like this outlet can't consider you because you have under 15,000, you know, people on your, you know, likes on Instagram or or, uh, followers on Instagram. You know, that's a terrible thing to have to report to someone because it has nothing to do with the music or their story. But unfortunately, like these are all part of the the package now. So if an artist has a strong social media presence, it really helps. Um, It also helps if they're on tour, you know, if an artist is is out there, it gives a lot more opportunity for things to be covered. If someone's not going to be on tour and they're not, there's no opportunity for people to see them. It's really hard for me to convince sometimes journalists to cover them because they don't really know, like, they're not really sure, like, who they're covering because they haven't been able to experience them live. You can only get so much from a recording. And with jazz, it's like people really want to, you know, they really want to experience the whole deal. So that can also be uh, really helpful. You know, people have tour dates and are out there. And if they're not, it does make the job a little harder. There's a lot of different facets. Um, then other times, you know, there's just really, 
incredible projects that are come out of nowhere and from someone who no one knows and you know things catch on and before you know it it's all over the place and it's like a freak thing and maybe they're not live and they they don't have social media and they're just like an amazing artist that just got discovered and that does happen but it's like few and far between that that happens a lot of the time do you have an example of that happening you know, in my own, in my own world, I mean, I've had a lot of my clients, they do do, I would, you know, most people do pretty well. I, I would say though, I'm trying to think, I think the majority lately of those that have been doing really well, though, do have all the, those components, at least one of those components working. I'm thinking maybe in the past, I'm trying to go back into my roster. I mean, there have been some musicians that have been maybe not from the United States um, that nobody knew here. And then they got some, you know, some really nice press and in, in the jazz magazines here, that was a surprise for them. Um, but even in the last five years, it's like things have just, I just feel like things have exploded so much. Like I just feel like there's, there's even more new music today than there was two, three, five years ago, just because the ability to put out music on your own now is so much more viable. So it's really, um, it's tough, man. It's a different playing field and it changes all the time. Yeah. So. Can I ask you, I'm always aware of artists who kind of flirt with the lines between let's say jazz contemporary jazz certainly and maybe more sort of popular forms and I think that you know it's great it it, it shows how jazz is evolving and in many ways is the hybrid music I think about like you know what Robert Glasper did for jazz and R&B um and you've worked with a couple of artists who do kind of move into more contemporary popular fields I'm thinking of like Lila Bialy or Emma Frank or Sarah Gazarek. Has there been increased opportunity for non-jazz outlets to be covering jazz artists if they do kind of blur those genre lines? Yeah, I I have noticed there is a there is seems there does seem to be a little bit more acceptance. Um, I think that now. In 2021, I feel like that the idea of genre has certainly been blurred quite a bit. And you can hear a lot of influences of everything in pop music. I mean, it, it's definitely not as like uniform as it once was. Like like even artists, you know, like Hiatus Coyote and and um, even more popular, you know, like SZA and artists that are like really, really famous. I mean, you can hear a lot of different influences in their music and it's not just like one straight straightforward thing. So I do think that that has kind of bled over it in general. So yeah, I mean, non-jazz outlets will come in to cover stuff sometimes, but it is it is still kind of an uphill battle. A lot of it does depend on social media stats, I find. Um, a lot of it kind of depends on having a feature of someone who's maybe very well-known that can help. There's all these like little things that you kind of have to get in line for those things to work out. But I will tell you, like I was really pleased a couple months ago, um, I'm working with this really phenomenal vocalist, Dara Tucker, and um, she got some coverage from American Songwriter for one of her singles, which I thought was really nice because they don't cover a lot of jazz. So I was really pleased, you know, to get that. Um, Tana Alexa, you know, earlier this year, she got some really nice coverage from Forbes, which was, and, and so did Sage actually with Sarah, Sarah Gazarek. So, you know, that was kind of an, a situation of me kind of knowing what a journalist likes and knowing that I could pitch him something on the fringe of jazz and that that would be kind of maybe cool for him to cover. And it was, it was right, you know. Um, the challenge sometimes comes when I've got artists that really have their, their feet firmly in the two worlds. So if I have an artist, let's say, who is maybe on tour with a really well-known pop artist or maybe has performed with them and is known for them, but then the album that they're pushing is like really jazz, that can get confusing because an outlet might be used to covering them in a different light. And then like, you're like, hey, but I have this jazz album they did. And they're like, yeah, like, this is cool news, but like my, my readers aren't gonna, like, they don't listen. They don't, no one knows what jazz is here. So like, they're not going to be interested in this. So, so that's kind of like, you know, it's like, okay, well, it could be a teachable moment where like you could expose your readers to jazz, but a lot of outlets are not willing to make that risk because they're all looking at like metrics of, you know, clicks and shares and all this stuff. And if it has low engagement, then it doesn't reflect well on them. And you know, there's all these crazy things that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> going to it. 
I, I mean, this is supposed to be a wonderfully uplifting interview, and it is. That nugget for me is so depressing because you just said, well, you know, genre lines are getting less sort of finite and rigid. But at the same time, that sort of insight makes me go, oh, that's a bummer. I mean, I think about someone you're working with now who has a new release out, and, you know, let's plug it because these listeners are jazz listeners. Yeah. Is Rachel Eckroth right now? She's on the road. Yeah, with St. Vincent, and she's toured with Rufus Wainwright and opened for him. So she certainly has access, possibly, to these other more kind of alt audiences. But it's a pity that some publications would say, well, she may be on on tour with St. Vincent, but her album is jazz and her album is is contemporary jazz really absolutely I agree with you and and actually you know in in Rachel's case it's true like I I did have an outlet um a prominent indie outlet that she's worked with before on her more you know singer songwritery stuff that has covered her and the editor was like I like this I like Rachel but this won't resonate with our readers because like they just don't know and you know, I, and I understand, like, I, I get it. I totally get where they're coming from. Um, and, you know, I, I was even happy he got back to me considering I'm sure he gets like a hundred pitches an hour. And that was nice that he responded, but yeah, I mean, this happens quite frequently and it, it's a bummer, but every now and then though, you can break through it. And a lot of it comes down to really, at least for me, keeping journalists up to date with what an artist is doing, even if it's not a fit for them at the moment. I think this can be frustrating for artists sometimes in general, where, Everybody wants things to happen fast, of course. Or everyone's impatient. I'm very impatient. Everyone's impatient. We all want things to happen right away. The thing is, though, is that the media landscape doesn't always work that way. And if something is on a breaking news story, you sort of have to keep people in tune with what's happening so that if and when the opportunity comes or they can do something, they know that they can come back to you for something that could be a fit. So part of the battle is really like, even just like letting these outlets know what's happening, even if it's not a fit for them, because there might be a time where Paste, for example, they do sometimes like a, you know, a jazz roundup, you know, once or twice a year. And you want to make sure that you are on their radar so that when the time comes six months down the line, they can be like, hey, remember when you sent me that thing that I couldn't write about then? Hey, I actually have like some chance to do this now. So can we talk about it? And that happens a lot. And, um, at the time, it can be disheartening for an artist, like, oh, why'd they pass? But then, you know, sometimes when that happens, that it's like a couple months later, surprise. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. So, you know, there's there's kind of just like straddling that line too of getting things immediately and getting things on time, but also having the patience and the foresight to be like, okay, I am gonna take the time to pitch this person. It might not result in something right away, but having like the faith that it really could end up being something great later. And sometimes it isn't. And sometimes they never answer. And you just like wasted all your time writing this email and for nothing. But most of the time though, or a good amount of the time, I I think that things do come back. Uh, So that's really a lot of the game is just letting people know what's up. Well, now you've restored my my faith, Lydia. I can always do that. Your point. I can always make it yeah. positive. I'm, I'm publicized. Yeah. I can always spin it. Exactly. <laughs> spin. Spinning, spinning like it's nobody's business. That's but right. I mean, to your point, it is that thing of you just don't know what the outcome's going to be. So I always say to people, send the email because you have nothing to lose. At worst, you have like five seconds of your time to lose. But that's really how long it can take to drop an email, send it and, you know, see. And as you say, I mean, it must be just such a thrill when you do get those breakthroughs for artists, especially when it's a surprise and you're like, oh, that's awesome. I love that person's album and they're flying under the radar, but now it's resonated with someone. It really is. I I get so, I I still get so excited when my clients get coverage. I mean, it's like, it's just really exciting to me. Like I, I I mean, the other day, like I knew that NPR was going to be featuring one of our artists and you know, I, I like my body, like woke me up at 7am, like to check it. And, you know, like, and I was like, Oh my God, I want to see it because it's exciting. And it is just for me, I mean, any win, like any time that jazz can get in front of a national audience is a win in for everybody, because it just keeps putting things out there. And that's something that I always try to like, I know this, but I try to remind my clients this too, where it's like, well, how come that she gets this? And I didn't get that. Or he got that. And I didn't get this. And sometimes it's like, we have to look at it as like the big picture, like, hey, just be glad that they're doing anything on jazz. I mean, I don't say that, but I'm thinking like, just be glad they're doing something because that just means that the door is just that much more open for us to continue to get this music place there. So I, I do try to look at everything, you know, as positively as possible. But then there are some outlets that just don't give, 
any, they just don't care about us. And they, they, don't, give they don't care. But I, you know, it's been, it's been interesting, put it that way. Who was on NPR? Kirk Lightsey was that? Kirk Lightsey was on NPR. He has oh. a solo piano record and he, he's like 83 years old. And it is just such a beautiful record, man. It's so, it's, it's such a special project. And um, it's launching the, this new label called Jojo Records. So it was a really nice launch for them. And that's also a real thrill. Like anytime an artist who has, you know, been with, like been with us for so long and has been giving their gift for so long, um, anytime that national recognition can come to an artist like that, it just makes me so happy. I've had this with Kirk. I recently had this, had this with Terry Gibbs, who is, you know, in his, uh, in his nineties and, you know, he is, um, his son just put an album out kind of in his honor, but featuring like Chick Corea and Ron Carter and Buster Williams and all these people, Jerry Gibbs called songs through my father. Uh, Charles McPherson is another one who released an album last year, you know, who's 80, 81, 82 years old. Like, yeah, and it's like these people are still with us and they're still churning out like insanely phenomenal music. So if they can get their flowers while they're here with us, like that is a real like, just sense of like personal joy for me. So it was really cool for Kirk to get that. I was happy about it. <laughs> she was born in Southern Ontario. For many people, you are the it girl when it comes to, do you know what I'm going to say? She's pulling her face. When it comes to the Grammys, the Grammy Awards, America's Grammy Awards, because we have international listenership here. And what I mean by that is when musicians are having a little whinge on Twitter and saying, I don't understand how this process works and I think it's rigged and it's all a mystery, the response I always give is, why don't you send Lydia Liebman an email? Because she is the person, and in fact, even Matt Merowitz, a fellow publicist, jazz publicist, referred to you when I mentioned something about the Grammys and he was like, yeah, well, you know, the way Lydia, Lydia really knows that ship, she steers that ship, she does it well. And um, you've had tremendous and well-deserved success with many of your artists. You mentioned Tana Alexa, who was nominated for the last Grammys, Baylor Project, Sage was nominated. What do you wish artists knew about the process since you do know so much about it? Well, I think the first thing about the Grammys, and this is what I try to tell everybody, and even like this is applies to the Grammy Awards, but it also applies to everything else, like with press and radio in general and everything. Like the Grammys is just, it's just another game that's part of this that you choose to play or not. And what I mean by that is there is value. Like, I think there's value in everything. There's value in having a press campaign. There's value in doing radio. Like there are people that will say, I don't know, jazz radio, like, is it still relevant? Yeah, it is to a certain market. It totally is. There is value in doing, playing the Grammy game. And obviously, okay, if you get a Grammy nomination, that's an amazing thing. And that's very helpful for your career. But even if you don't, still playing that game is really important because it's another way to get your music out there. So I really just look at all of this as either you want to play or you don't. And it's very funny because when I was growing up, the Grammys were not like, not really a cool thing in my house. Like my dad was nominated for a Grammy when I was in like kindergarten. And I, of course, was like elated because I thought this meant I would meet Britney Spears. So I was very happy about this. And my dad was like, no, man, I hate this. Like, I don't want anyone judging my music. Like I, I'm not going to the Grammys. Like this is 
bullshit. Like, this is ridiculous. And I was always just like, oh, dad, like, <laughs> so lame. Like, I want to meet the Backstreet Boys. Like, why are you doing this? But of course I understand. Like, I get it. And now that I'm older, of course I get it. Because it's like, who are, like, it's like, who are they to judge the art that someone like him is creating? But then, you know, as I got like deeper into this world and really started to see how all these things go, I realized that it really is, you have to just realize what it's about and know how to play it. So for me, I think that um, artists should come in with that mindset that this isn't, also that the Grammys is not going to make or break your career. I've had plenty of artists get Grammy nominations and it's been great for them. It helps, but they still are, you know, they still have to continue to work just as hard as they did before the nomination. It's not a, a magic bullet to completely change the trajectory of your career. Maybe it was at one time, but now in these days, there's so many other factors that make stardom that it's not really the only thing anymore. Um, so I think there's understanding that the reality of what it means to get a Grammy nomination is helpful. Um, and also just kind of understanding that, you know, how do I put this? The Grammys are a really useful tool if you do it right. It is only relevant for, it only, let me, let me, let me rephrase. The Grammys is a useful tool if you know what to do with it once you get your nomination. And it is not a thing like a lot of people like, oh my God, I got a Grammy nomination or I'm going to get one. That means that I'm good. And it's like, no, like you have to then really now work even extra hard. The pressure's on you now because you got this nomination, the light's on you to really now like, what are you gonna do next? Cause you're only as good as your next project in the end, people have short attention spans. So I, it's, yeah, I think the Grammys are cool. People should do it. They should play the game. Um, the way to play the game these days is actually a little bit more uh, equal. So they say, cause they got rid of these secret committees for the first time in a long time. So this year should really be a very interesting year um, because it's supposed to be a direct democracy vote situation where the top five that are voted through the the membership is supposed to be who becomes the final five that are nominated. We'll see how that goes. If that is true, and I say that if, because I don't know, but if that is how it really goes, then it should be a very interesting year. And this could be a really bizarre year. I mean, we could have people that are not your typical shoe-ins um, because of kind of like the, the mobilization efforts that artists do to get their music out there during Grammy time. So we shall see. Um, but yeah, it's just another game to play. You either want to do it or not. And if you don't, it's totally cool. Like there's no reason, um, you know, there's, I, I'm, I'm in support of both sides always. But if you do want to play, I, I can help you. <laughs> Lydia is the queen's gambit of the Grammy game, all right? Just yes. manifest your, your Grammy board and she'll help you move all the necessary pieces. I wish, that would be amazing. It's so much of it though, it's just, it's a good artist, man. It, but you know, all the projects that have been nominated for Grammys that we've worked, like, they're amazing projects. I mean, they're just so good. Like Tana's album is, is great. Uh, Catherine Russell's record that was nominated, you know, a couple of years ago, Alone Together is a great record, man. Like Spanish Harlem Orchestra, they're an amazing group. Like that album deserved to win because it was so good. I mean, so, you know, it helps <laughs> that the artists happen to be like ridiculously incredible. Like it, it, it does help. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> released an album with Glenn Close. Tell me about working on that. 
if there's anything to tell, because I don't know if your your focus might have been very Ted centric because you know, he's available in a way that maybe Glenn is not, but let us know. Yeah, no, that project was really a treat. I have to tell you, I have been doing this 10 years and that was a very different release to work for a variety of reasons. First, musically, it's a very different type of project. It's not your typical jazz album. It's kind of a spoken word kind of vibe. There's a lot of uh, heavy topics that are discussed on it. It features a lot of names. You know, you've got um, Wayne Brady on there in addition with Glenn Close. You know, you've got um, Ted Nash's son, Eli, is featured on there. You know, there's a lot of different moving parts on that. So from a, just from a musical standpoint, it was, it was kind of a beast. Uh, even like writing the press release, it's like, oh my gosh, like my writer, who is amazing. Um, I have this great writer named Matt Silver, who, you know, works on some of my, my work, um, you know, on a case-by-case basis. And he helped me with this one. And I was like, Matt, like, <laughs> we were both kind of like, man, this is a hard one to write about. Um, so even that was difficult. But once we kind of figured out kind of the narrative and what we're doing and how we're going to present this, it was really for me an interesting way because this is what we're talking about. You know, how do we get non-jazz outlets to cover this music? And um, what really was amazing was I pitched it to the Associated Press and they they picked it up. You know, they, they picked it up and that was started kind of a firestorm because once that got picked up and they didn't just like pick up the release, they also did like an interview with Ted. They did an interview with Glenn, like they did a photo shoot with Ted. Like it was really cool. And that was my first time working with them to that degree with the AP and that degree and, and dealing with Glenn's team has been really an eye opener because she's represented by a really, you know, prominent PR firm, Rogers and Cowan and um, interfacing with her publicist who Catherine Olam, who I really loved working with. I actually thought she was phenomenal and she was really cool to work with with me. And I liked it a lot. I learned a lot about how that works and it is a very different world. You know, when you're working with Hollywood, it's a different thing. And uh, it was quite a learning experience for me and really was, it was really cool. I had a really positive experience. And I mean, Ted is a great, is great to work with. I, he was a, such a blast and he's wonderful and loved working with him and Kabir and the producer of the record. I mean, all of them are lovely, but working with Glenn's team was definitely different for me. Um, but she was amazing. She was down to do everything. Like she was really easy to work with. And I mean, scheduling, of course, would be a little tricky because she's like Glenn Close and she's like very busy, but she made time for stuff and um, she did it, man. And I was told that she was like the kindest, sweetest person in all the interviews. And that was great to hear. So I, uh, she also has the same breed of dog that I do. So, uh, which is a Havanese. So I am obviously um, a huge fan of Glenn Close. <laughs> obviously. And in Barely. fact, her dog feet, her dog features quite prominently on our Instagram. Cause that's yes. where I follow her. And oh, I just, yes. yeah. Yeah. I'm we have such the same a fan. Breed. Got the same breed. I'm like, well, anyone who has a Havanese for a dog, like clearly is a great person. So, um, you know, already, but uh, then she also just like happens to be Glenn Close. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> if she ever wants great. to come on the chat session, <laughs> let me know. No, totally. Like, honestly she may like maybe because the thing is is like she actually she really cared about cares about this project and this is a a project really close to her heart also and she really wanted to work to get it out there you know and I had her doing interviews with all these all these things and she she did a man and she was she was a great sport and uh, her team was awesome and it was great next time she wants to do her next jazz record like I'm totally game for it (laughs) I'm there for it Lydia's there and what's more I mean and obviously I'm thinking specifically about like the medium of podcast but I'm sure she speaks so beautifully about it I think she's succinct and well-spoken so um oh I love that oh I just yeah it was great yeah I don't have a horror story about you know or anything that I mean it really was a really positive experience and I also was really grateful truly to her PR person because Catherine was really generous with me and you know, she wasn't, so sometimes publicists, if you don't know them, they can get a little, and I'm guilty of this myself too. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to share contacts and all this stuff. She was like completely cool. You know, she was like bringing me in on threads with editors and people that I, I don't really know. And, and she was like introducing me. I mean, it was very kind. And so I, I really appreciated that. And it was a great experience. I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was great. Now, 
am ready to tell how bodies are changed into different bodies. Before sea or land, before even sky, which contains all, nature wore only one mask, since called chaos. A huge agglomeration of upset, a bolus of everything, but as if aborted and the total arsenal of entropy already at war within it. No sun showed one thing to another. No moon played her phases in heaven. No earth spun in empty air on her own magnet. No ocean basked or roamed on the long beaches. Land, sea, air. We're all there, but not to be trodden or swummen. Air was simply darkness. Everything fluid or vapor, form, formless, each thing hostile to every other thing, at every point, hot, fought cold, moist, dry, soft, hard, and the weightless resisted weight. Some such artist as resourceful began to sort it out. Can we finish off with a little quick fire? Sure, hit me. Yeah, for it. Okay. Yeah. As a publicist, when are you happiest? When I get uh, a, I am happiest when my clients land a pitch that I didn't expect them to. So something in Rolling Stone, something in Billboard, something high level. Love that. As a publicist, when are you most challenged? <laughs> Whenever I open my inbox and there's 500 emails for me to answer. Um, most challenged, I'll put it this way. The most challenging part of my job is that there are only 24 hours in a day and it is impossible for me to answer every person. And what I mean by that, uh, what makes me the most the, the hardest part about this job is saying no to people. And I'm thankful. I mean, I'm very thankful to be in a position where a lot of people have been, you know, reaching out to work with us and I'm pleased about that. But I also feel bad a lot of the time because it is really hard for me to stay on top of all the inquiries that come in. I know this sounds like insane because like you should be thankful for work and I am, but it's uh, that's a challenge. I feel bad. Um, I feel bad when I have to tell, tell people no. I feel bad if I can't answer people. Those things are a challenge. Um, and just in general, putting out fires on a daily basis is a challenge. But like I'm used to doing that. But I actually do genuinely feel bad when I can't get back to every single person that reaches out. Um, however, I do answer like pretty much every press person that reaches out. So like clients listening, like don't worry, I got you on that. <laughs> I, I got you on that. <laughs> I love that. As a publicist, when are you disappointed? Well, anytime someone passes on something, that's disappointing. Um, I get most disappointed though when, I'm disappointed when an artist is disappointed because I feel a lot of things. So if an artist is disappointed and they're like, I'm sad about this, like, unless it's like a completely ridiculous thing and I have to like set school them and set it straight, which sometimes is the case, I am also usually feeling sad too. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I get disappointed a lot, unfortunately, as publicists because people do say no a lot, but yeah sadness par for the course and the last one as a publicist when are you hopeful i well i'll tell you this i'm actually pretty hopeful all the time uh because i you have to be you have to be hopeful like i think that being hopeful and being positive is a really essential part of the job um if you are not hopeful for your clients if you don't hope that something will come through and your spirit's not in it i feel like like if you're just phoning it in i don't know i i, I know this sounds like you know, some woo-woo stuff, but 
sometimes like if I'm pitching something that I think is a long shot, when I like really, really feel, oh, I really hope this lands, like I'm really going to put all, my all into this pitch and really like try to do a great job as explaining it. When I do that, sometimes a lot of the time I, I actually do get a response and even a pass is a response and a response is better than nothing. And to me, like that's something. So whenever I, I get a reply um, from a journalist, obviously if it's a good one, yay. But even if it's not, I, I do feel hopeful in that way because it makes me feel like, okay, like I'm doing right, I'm doing the right thing. And it just kind of like reinforces like what I'm doing. So you have to be hopeful all the time or else, yeah, like it'll just be very sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very sage wisdom to end off on, that a response is better than nothing. And I'm very, th I'm just thrilled that you responded to my request to come on the Insider. Totally. So, I'm honored. No, thank seriously. you. And I, you know, the jazz session has always been um, just a wonderful program in general. I mean, Jason did a great job for all these years. And, you know, it's just an honor to be in the same universe as that. So I'm so honored that you would even think of me. And thank you. No, well, thank you. And I know that you're a Patreon member and your support, Lydia, is just so appreciated. And I hope that folks will go and follow you online because then they can be privy to all of the artists who are releasing music and that you're helping. It's just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nikki. Yeah, you can, um, if anyone is interested, I'm at Lydia Lieben Promotions on Instagram and um, at Lydia Lieben on Twitter. But on Twitter, I just complain about my inbox and uh just <laughs> reshare stuff so you're probably better to hit me on instagram um but yeah that's where you can find me lydialeeman.com Thank you to today's guest on The Insider, the wonderful Lydia Liebman. The Insider is a spin-off series where I deliver monthly episodes to my $10 per month Patreon members. If you're listening to this, either you're a Patreon member at the $10 tier, thank you so much for your support, or you're not a Patreon member, but Lydia and my lovely patrons gave me the go-ahead to share this episode with anyone and everyone in an attempt to entice you to join us over at Patreon. If you're interested, you can head to thejazzsession.com join to find out more information about how you can support The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. I will place any names or songs or albums mentioned during today's conversation in the show notes for the episode, as well as any links to websites of the artists with whom Lydia works. I hope you are enjoying this season thus far. Please do tell your friends, family members and pets about the jazz session and do engage with me on social media. Come and find me there. Take care and I'll see you soon.